podcast is brought to you by Danny Antman, the author of a new book entitled Wired for God, Adventures of a Jewish Yogi. Please listen to podcast number 655 with Danny Antman and Greg as they discuss her new book, Wired for God, about her personal spiritual journey and awakening. Danny tells a very compelling story for the reader about being Jewish by birth, but having the yearning to learn more about yogic science, kundalini science, and the Kabbalah. From her birthplace in New York, to her encounters with a channeler, to her travels in India. Learn more about the science of the kundalini and how the process will transform the reader's desire to want to learn more about their own spirituality. I hope you enjoy podcast number 655 with author Danny Antman. If you want to learn more, please visit the book website at www.wiredforgod.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. Uh, This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Tim, as I do every time I come on these shows and I tell my authors, um, without the listeners, uh, there'd be no inside personal growth. There'd be no Greg Voicing out here working on about 650 plus podcasts. Um, today, joining me, and Tim, where are you today? Because I know we've got you on your cell phone. So are you in your home? I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. Charlotte, North Carolina. And is that home for you? Yes, it is. Okay, so we've got Tim Cole, uh, an author of a brand new book called The Compass Solution, A Guide to Winning Your Career. And this is an interesting book. Um, Tim basically is trying to help people um, find the best career, and and he calls Win It, and we're going to get into this in a minute. But I'm going to let people know about you and how Tim kind of shifted his own track in his career He invested three plus decades in healthcare and pharmaceutical industry through dozens of restructures and five mergers. He held multiple leadership and senior executive positions and played a major role uh, in the ascent of a mid-sized firm into one of the largest in the world with direct involvement in the launch of 20 plus pharmaceutical brands, six of which became global blockbusters. He's managed thousands of people and portfolios worth billions of dollars. But Tim has shifted his focus. His time now and energy is on sharing the secrets and lessons he learned in the corporate world to help others achieve sustainable, successful, and fulfilling careers. And you can learn more about Tim, and we'll have this link in our blog as well, Tim, at www.thecompassalliance.com. It's the, T-H-E-C-O-M-P-A-S-S-A-L-L-I-A-N-C-E.com. And I'm sure Tim wouldn't mind if anyone has any questions after this podcast, tim.cole at thecompassalliance.com. Well, Tim, fascinating book. Uh, Your career has taken a path. I've watched some of your videos out in Moab uh, with the rest of the people hiking. And obviously, I love the theme. It's around compass, and I think it's a guiding star. And this book is about guiding people to better career. And you state in the foreword of the book, that over 50% of American workers want to change their jobs. So they're either disengaged or not engaged at all. And we do in this country measure engagement. Why do we suffer with such a high dissatisfaction in the workplace in your estimation? And how would you see as a leader that leaders of companies could actually change that high level of disengagement? Well, first of all, I appreciate the question, and I appreciate the opportunity, Greg, to join you. I think there's a lot of layers to your first question. Why is there such a high degree of of burnout? I 
I would tell you that in my experience, and you, you referenced it well, you set it up well, I went through so many changes in a very, very turbulent industry, and I saw hundreds, maybe thousands at various times burn out. In my experience, the reasons for the burnout usually came down to one of two or three different items. Uh, number one, people lost a sense of purpose. They didn't mm -hmm. know why they went to work any longer, and once they lost that sense of purpose, what might have been a career defaulted to just being a job, and usually, usually that people are just going to work to do a job or far more prone to burnout. So that was the first factor. I think the other factor is that along the way, people began to lose a sense of direction. You know, your organization shifts, your job responsibilities shift, your manager gets uh, moved out of the organization, and, and suddenly that clear, absolutely uh, focal point path that you started with begins to get cloudy, and then it begins to get curvy, and before you know it, the direction, I think, begins to get uh, so opaque that people lose their way. And then I think the third thing is at that point, people begin to no longer have the inspiration to go to work every day. And I saw that repeatedly. One of the things I, I've told people, I have a good friend that uh, wrote a book called The Littlest Green Beret. His name's Jan Rutherford. He's an ex-Special Forces guy. Mm -hmm. And I've always used, I've always used his example uh, as a pretty good one when you talk about burnout. He, he says, you know, when we went through Special Forces training, we had forced runs, you know, full rec rucksack runs. And these are really, really quality athletes. We ran every day the prescribed limit. And then one day, our drill instructor said, keep running when we got to the end. Now, I don't know how far they had already run, let's say 10 miles for the purposes of the story. But he said, when we got beyond end point, strange thing happened. Strong, well-conditioned men began to fall out. And the reason they fell out is that they knew, no longer knew where they were going how far the trail would be and what the purpose of the run was anymore. And he said, psychologically, people began to falter. I think in some ways that's what happens with jobs and careers. People lose their sense of purpose and their sense of direction. And at that point, at that point, they're far more prone to beginning to burn out. So that's the answer to the first part of your question. What can leaders do? Well, I'll tell you, Gallup had, I think, the most definitive study last year, 2016. They came out with a look at millennials. And only 29% of them are truly engaged in their work, which is an appalling number. Gallup's feedback basically was this. Line leaders, leaders are often, often the most important difference maker in keeping people engaged in their job. Good leaders tell you, hey, this is what we need to do. They empower you and coach you to help you do it, and they give you feedback on whether or not you're making progress. The inverse of that, the opposite of that, is the person that goes to work every day and they work in the dark and they're not sure where they're going. And again, it goes back to purpose and direction. So I think the first thing line leaders or any leader can do is cultivate an environment where people feel like they're wanted, respected, needed, and their chances of burnout are far less than others. No, that's great advice because uh, truly in today's work environments and not all of them, I mean, there's many of them where the cultures are shifting. They're constantly working on this. Uh, to attract and retain good, high-quality people with inside of this and, you know, the teams that get built as well. I think that's important. I love your story about the run and the people giving up. You know, there's a story about there uh, out there that gets told many times, but I'll reiterate it for the listeners about the lady who was swimming from Catalina back to the shore. It was foggy, and she couldn't see, obviously. So just right before the end, basically, she gives up. 
because she couldn't see the finish line, right? I think a lot of times people can't see that finish line or they can't see that end goal, especially in corporations today, because more and more just gets piled on top of them. So, you know, there's a blurred lines in really seeing something get accomplished because it's like, okay, we're going to accomplish this and then we're going to go to the next and the next and the next and the next. They're not celebrating those accomplishments and it's foggy for them. It gets really foggy. So they give up. Um, And that's, that's one of the analogies I think that works. Now you state the cardinal point starts with establishing true North. And I understand what true North is and trying to establish our own personal accountability. How do you assist people in finding their own true North and becoming more personally accountable for reaching true North, reaching whatever that true North is? Yeah, well, and I think that's, uh, first of all, you're right. Everybody has to have a North Star. Everybody has to have a load star. And for me, and I'll offer again, I tell a lot of stories, but I had an epiphany early in my career. After I'd lost my manager, my department had shifted, the world was turning topsy-turvy, and I looked in the mirror one day, and I came to, uh, I guess, a, a realization that was difficult, but it was it was valid, and that was the only person that was going to travel with me over the course of my career. Unfortunately, it was me, and mm-hmm. so I began to think about what I was doing with my career and began to apply some critical thinking that up to that point, at least, I hadn't. You know. When I when I stumbled, and I've said this before, I stumbled into a career. I, I was not purposeful at the time. I had no real sense of what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to make a little bit of money and maybe get a company car, and that was about the extent of it, which I'm embarrassed to say today, but that was kind of the extent of my career planning. But when I began to look at the world that I had entered into and realized how truly competitive it was, I mean, it was in, if you didn't produce, you didn't stay. So I began to say, all right, the only way I'm going to make this, if my manager is shifting, my division's shifting, my company is shifting, the only way I'm going to make it is I'm going to find markers. And I'll go back to your uh, introduction when you talked about Moab and for purposes of the people that haven't visited my website, a lot of it was filmed in Moab because we were on a a crucible hike. Uh, Some business executives, my son and I were out there having a great time. But in Moab, you learn very quickly that if you don't have some sense of a compass and some sense of markers, you're going to get lost and you're probably going to get hurt. So for me, the North Star and the first of the four markers that I eventually built a career around was just that personal accountability. And it all stemmed around the notion of I'm going to fully invest in myself. I'm going to treat myself as the brand and I'm going to make sure that I find something at some point that I am passionate about and that I have an aptitude for. Because what I saw a lot of times, people would go to work, but they never found something they were passionate about, and they never really took the time to inventory their skills. And if you haven't done that, if you really haven't done that, then finding that North Star is going to be difficult. So in the book, The Compass Solution, I offer some practical, functional uh, examples of what people can do to eventually embrace the notion of personal accountability. Because when you do that, your chances, I think, for succeeding in a significant career probably increase at least probably two or threefold. Well, you you mentioned a, an important thing there. You talked about personal brand, and uh, I, I've done three interviews with Dory Clark. The last book is called Entrepreneurial You. And one of the things that we all talk about, and you talk about, uh, uh, Cal Newport talks about it too, is the skill set. 
What do you suggest to the listeners out there that are day and you're you're stating this to help them find and or examine their skills? I mean, there's there's so many resources. Um, do you have anything in particular that you would give as advice to helping people find that that kind of true north with those skills? Yeah, I, and I appreciate the question because I think this is something that's an overlook for a lot of people. It's a blind spot. If I were going to, if I were counseling right now a 25-year-old, mm-hmm. and that 25-year-old was saying, you know, I kind of think I sort of like this, you know, that provisional kind of maybe talk, right. I, I would say to them, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to your local uh, bookstore or go online. I want you, and I, I'll, I'll shameless plug for Tom Rath's Spring yeah. Finder 2.0. Spring I go. Yeah, I would go to that right up because that gives you not only a sense of where your aptitudes are, but where your potential skills are. What it doesn't do is tell you whether or not you've leveraged those aptitudes. It just simply says you have a propensity in these particular areas. And I think that's really important for most people. If you don't know where your skills are, you know, I could say, hey, I want to be a uh, premier jockey in the Kentucky Derby. Well, I don't have the aptitudes to be that, nor the size. So I, I say to people, think about the passion piece, but definitely factor the aptitudes. And that's a, probably a good starting point right there. So you're saying Tom Rath and the strength principles or the strength finders, I'm sorry. It's been out yep. for years, folks. Uh, he was hired by Gallup, um, if I remember correct. Um, we've done an interview with him. Uh, I'll put a link in there to that because uh, actually Tom is referencing it. So. Again, that's one very good area. There's lots of resources out there, so but just find one where you can kind of test your skills and they'll give you some guiding star as a result of it. I will also put some others in there. Now, Tim, um, I love your key points at the end of these chapters called Straight Talk. And at the end of each chapter, you put in a little box. Now, you state that the corporate world is going to homogenize us and that we will not survive and thrive if we commit to always just following the crowd, um, how does your comp- your company, the, the Compass Solution, uh, help people get beyond their fears, because that's the biggest thing, to become their own unique asset, to brand themselves, to kind of stand on their own uh, versus just being one in the crowd? Yeah, uh, I appreciate the question. I'll reference a movie that's a favorite of mine that I think about often when I think about this subject, uh, Shawshank Redemption years ago, uh, there was a, uh, a geriatric convict that was finally released and he didn't make it on the outside. And I remember the, the courtyard talk after where one of the prisoners said, well, the reason he didn't survive is that he had become institutionalized. And the reference was he had been in prison so long that he couldn't survive any long in the outside world. And I think to a certain degree, to answer your question, in the corporate world, there is a push to center that says, I must look like, act like, behave like, respond like the next person in line. And what I try to say in the book, The Compass Solution, is that that may feel like a safer place to be, but it is a, an illusion. The reality is every company Every industry is looking for a value add that is beyond the norm, and more often than not, that requires you to step out of the comfort zone of staying in line and exercising the right brain that challenges you to be a little bit more creative and sometimes not buckle down to what the norm is. And I offer some practical examples there, and 
uh, again, I think one of the people that, that's really good at, at that is Rich Harwath in his book. Uh, he talks a lot about uh, what's involved in being truly different from the norm. Now, I'm not suggesting that, you know, you put on an orange suit and dance into the lobby of your building. But I think what I try to say and offer some practical examples for is that you really don't have to be like everybody else. Uh, mm -hmm. When I think about the people that I've met over the course of 30 plus years, almost 40 years in the corporate world, you know, the people that I most remember, the people that in some cases had the most impact were the ones that were actually courageous enough to be a little bit different. Yeah, I think that was part of uh, Steve Jobs' commencement address at uh, Stanford. Mm -hmm. you know, you got people ought to go back and really listen to that because it was um, much of it was about being unique and stepping out of the box and you know following your soul's calling. I mean, much of this work that you do is really, you know, I have a degree in spiritual psychology. It's very spiritual in nature. It's about you finding what your soul is doing. I just finished an inter interview with uh, called Ageless Soul by Thomas Moore. Was a monk, he was a psychotherapist, I mean, you name it. But the point is, is that if we're not listening to the soul, if we don't have even a belief there, we're going to have a tough time finding the North Star. Um, it let alone, even though you can say, oh, these are my skills. There's something way beyond the skills that you're connected to. And you mentioned this in the book, and I, we talked about it earlier. You talked about it just a few minutes ago, this burnout, and that it's a self-inflicted wound. And I, I think that people in corporate America are subject to it, but so are entrepreneurs who are also have stepped out on their own. What advice do you have for people to balance their lives between their work and their play? And I'd probably say this is as much for entrepreneurs as it is for entrepreneurs, the people that are inside these companies working. Yeah, I, I, that's uh, very valid. And by the way, as regards your earlier comment, I think you're, you're so right. When you have a soul that's in conflict, um, inevitably there's a breaking point. And I've worked with probably hundreds, hundreds that were. So I, I, I want to just reaffirm the earlier comment you made there, Greg. As, as regards burnout, yeah, I, I think it's universal. I mean, the numbers are there. Every generation, whether it's baby boomers, generation X, Y, or millennials, every generation right now that's at work in this U.S. economy is subject to burnout, and it's costing the U.S. economy. Again, I'm citing numbers that are well known somewhere between 450 and 550 billion dollars a year mm -hmm. so it, it's not locked into a major corporation you can be working at the local retail store and then you're still subject to it and i i always go back and say i think burnout is a is something along the lines of a five-step process it's first loss of purpose loss of direction then loss of inspiration, and then what we call disengagement, where you really don't care to be there anymore. And then it's full burnout. And that I liken to career zombie. You know, that's where you're, you're, you're dead in the head, dead in the heart, but you're going through the motions. And, and I think, and I'll offer, and I offer a lot of thoughts in the, in the book, but one of the things that I try to challenge people on, because I've seen it, is that if you're going to perform, whether you're a, an agent of one or part of a 5,000 person organization is you almost have to treat your body and your mind and, and really your soul uh, like an athlete would. And by that, I mean, understand that there is an emotional component 
There is a spiritual component. Uh, there is certainly a social component. And, you know, by the time you get physical, emotional, social, and spiritual, I try to say to people, look, if you really want to make it, you've got to think about all those aspects, and you've got to make sure you're developing all those dimensions of your being, or at some point, one of the others will begin to fail. And I talk about, you know, what I call the burnout bus busters in the book, and it's just practical advice of things that I've seen that distinguish people that made it for the long haul. And one of the things I say, and then I'll stop on that, is that, you know, when I started, Greg, I thought I was entering into a marathon. I thought it was going to be, you know, 30 years, whatever it might be, it's going to be a marathon. Your career is not a marathon. It's a series of sprints. Mm -hmm. And in between those sprints, you better be resting or eventually you'll burn out on the trail. And so to answer your question, that's what I talk about a lot in the book because I think it's a, an ailment. No, I think it's probably an epidemic that we uh, in this country and really across the globe have got to take a longer, closer look at. And it, it is. And the numbers, you know, hold out. You said $500 billion, but the reality is, is that, yeah, that's only a small part of it because I think we can measure so much. But if you really look at um, people's ability to bring their body, mind, and soul to work and to actually say, this is work that I love doing and get really engaged in it. Um, it's, it's a far cry that you actually see that happening in so many places, even though we are as an industrialized nation, one of the most creative and inventive uh, countries in the world. Um, you also see the flip side of this coin, which is, you know, people, as we're seeing now an epidemic on and people, uh, engaged in drug behavior and, and these kind of things to kind of numb themselves from the pain of so much, uh, so fast. Uh, and I think that is part of it is it is so much so fast. What are some of the things that people can do um, in your estimation to create this free agent mindset, knowing that, you know, you talked about millennials. And I think this is also true with boomers today as well, that you know, some of these jobs are only going to last four or five years. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you're going to go take a job inside of a company and, you know, you may be there five, seven years, but the reality is, there is going to be some turnover. Like you said, it's, it's, it's uh, the short sprints. Um, and if they start down this free agent path, how do they stay out of the fear that they might have to return to this corporate world structure? Because mm -hmm. that is a reality for people. Okay. I step out, I become the free agent. All right. I'm not good at marketing myself. I now have to step back in. Because if you were always good at marketing yourself, you'd never have to step back in that. I think that's a, a great point. And uh, to your point, whether you work for a corporation or you're an entrepreneur and uh, you know, the company is one person, uh, the reality is everybody, I guess, to a varying degree is a contracted free agent. Uh, I come from a corporate world. And what I try to stress to people that listen to or read some of my comments is, when you go to work today, mm -hmm. as opposed to when I started, you need to make the assumption that your average job is going to be about four, four years. Some cases it's longer, some cases it's, it's shorter, but assume four years. And yeah, th there are a couple things that I say to people. So I want you to think always that the job could end and you need to keep alternatives open for you, whether that's a return to corporate or you're leaving corporate. Four things I talk about in the book, Free Agent Four, and I try to keep the book short, simple, boom, this is what you need to know. The first is 
from the first hour, first day of your job, whether it's the greatest job of all time or the worst, build your skills based on the assumption that the job is going to end. Build your skills based on that it's going to end because if you don't, you're going to be surprised at some points. And I go into greater detail, but that's the first one. Second thing is I say craft a verifiable record of production. You know, performance rules in most careers and certainly in the corporate world, I've interviewed thousands of people. The first thing I always look for when I interview a candidate is their record of contribution of performance above and beyond the norm. I've interviewed thousands. Every one of them has told me they're great, but I'm looking for a verifiable record that shows me they're great, and there's a big difference there. So I say to people, build a track record. Third thing is expand beyond the traditional. You, If you are someone who's just done the basics of the job, good luck to you. You'll probably find a job somewhere, but most good companies, certainly the great companies, are looking for people that have done more than the basics because if it's a buyer's choice market, if I'm interviewing, I am going to be very selective. I'm going to, I'm going to hire the top 1%, so I want you to think about that. And then the last thing, the last of the free agent four is I'm going to say network beyond the boundaries of your company. If the only networking you do is within the brick and mortar of the company you work for, that's not networking. That's uh, simply building a cohesive network within your organization. The really smart brand marketing experts are always enhancing their brand by reaching beyond the brick and mortar and creating a, a network that allows them, if their job does come to an end, to immediately pick up the phone and look at options. So those free agent four are some of the things that we talk about. Well, and that is very, very sound advice, uh, Tim, for our listeners. And again, very practical advice. And I think it's important uh, that you know people take heed to that. I, I love the way this book is laid out um, with the main key points made like that. Like you said, you make these chapters short and sweet and to the point, and that makes it for easy reading too. Now, well, thank you. Yeah, you're a heavy advocate of people helping people along the path. Look, uh, you know, when you, you read about the hero's journey um, and Joseph Campbell, that's all that every story is ever made about, right? It's the villain and the person that comes back. And if you look at all of the movies that are ever made, it's about people helping people. But when you look out on the trail markers and you talk about these markers a minute ago up in Moab, and if without them, you'd be lost. That's right. We'd be at, we'd all be lost without guides, without correct guides. How do you suggest our listeners find these, what I would call wise guides along their path uh, to help them in their climb the career mountain, as you call it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I can tell you, I had to learn something again. Uh, so much of the book is based on my own mistakes and lessons learned the hard way. I, when I came into the corporate world, my philosophy was I'll keep my head down, I'll prove what I'm capable of, I'll overproduce, and good things will come to me, which was a pretty naive assumption because there's a lot of high productive, hardworking people out there. And it took me a time to realize that if you're really uh, marginally intelligent, in my case, you're going to be reaching out and finding mentors. So here's the simple answer to your question. For me, I had to look beyond title and begin to study the people within my organization and outside the organization that were what I call people of influence. The thing I was surprised by, Greg, is sometimes 
their titles were not as impressive as others, but they were the people that others looked at, respected, and maybe more important, listened to. So I began to be, I guess for lack of a better term, a, a student of human behavior. I would go into, and I talk about in the book, the, the meeting room test. I, mean, I, I can't go into a meeting room now without looking at the group dynamics, without watching the eye contact, without watching who really is respected in that group, and kind of going through the game of saying, okay, if I were starting a company right now, who would be the leader or leaders that I would be consulting with within that room? And more often than not, if you invest even a month in any company in looking at and identifying the people that really are individuals of influence, they're the people that you want to at least approach. And here's how you're going to be able to validate whether or not they're the real deal. If you go to a person, and let's say it's a senior individual, more often than not it will be, and say, hey, uh, Susan, I, I have some really ambitious career goals. I would love to sit down someday over a cup of coffee and talk with you about them. If Susan's response is, hey, we'll, we'll do it sometime, thanks, I'll get back to you, strike Susan from the list. If, on the other hand, Susan says, I'd love to sit down with you. Let's put some time on the book so that we can really have a good conversation because you know what? Three people made a difference in my life, and I'd like to pay it forward. That's the person you want to reach out to. If it's reluctant, if, it's, if there's a reticence, if there's a hmm, deer in the headlights, that's not a leader. Leaders mm -hmm. you'll know within the first five minutes of conversation. I spend a lot of time talking about transformative leaders versus transactional managers in the book, and I, I really believe this, Greg. I think if you're lucky, in the course of the career, I mean, I'm talking a full career, I think you'll, most of us, if we're lucky, will meet two, maybe three transformative leaders. We'll run into hundreds of transactional managers, but you'll meet a couple transformative leaders, and those are the ones that you grab hold of and hope that they'll be willing to help you. Uh, most, I think you outlined that really well, Tim, uh, the finding people that uh, listen with empathy um, and understanding and compassion um, is really important. And like you said, if they're deer in headlights, there's a good chances are they're not connected, um, that it, it may not be anything against you or, or them at the time. You just have to move on. You have to know where to find this. And I, and I think an important factor here is, is tuning into your intuition as a business person, as a free agent, you really need to hone that intuition and listen to that voice that's talking to you or that feeling you're having or that gut feeling, because that's where you're going to find some of your best people that are going to help you. Mm -hmm. You have a chapter entitled Mirror, Mirror on the Wall, and the quote under the heading is, life is only a reflection of what we allow ourselves to see. And I'm going to add to that, see and think. Mm -hmm. um, how does our perspective of our reality shape our present, past, and future in your estimation? And more importantly, more importantly for this book and the purposes of this book, our career choices, which I think these career choices, Tim, are made blindly. We basically go down a path, just like you said, hey, I kind of fell into this. All I wanted was a company car, make some money. And we don't spend enough time thinking about that, right? So my question to you is, what is it that you would say to listeners out there uh, it could help them kind of shape their career and how their perspective about it really, really impacts them? 
Yeah, that's uh, first of all, I love the way you, you worded the question. And I would tell you, it goes back to, I guess, the why behind the book. When I sat down and began to do research on how many careers really are not successful, at best they're, I guess, survival uh, experiences, and began to quantify it, I realized pretty quickly, you know, the biggest financial investment of your life is your career. There's not a close second, unless you are Mm -hmm. a trust fund baby or have money that you've got buried in the backyard. For most of us, the biggest investment is our career, and unfortunately, well over half aren't winning that investment. So the message I would want to impart to anyone that's really wanting to win the career, and the subtitle for the book, A Guide to Winning Your Career, I chose with a, a great deal of deliberation because I'm saying to people, I want you to win it. I don't want you to survive it. I don't want you to say at the end of it, well, I was able to pay for college education. It, it was okay. I think that's the bleakest descriptor of the biggest investment in your life that I could imagine. And so what I try to say to people is, look, I want you to apply a little bit more critical thinking, certainly more than your choice of craft beer or where you're going for a restaurant to your career. And and that's what this book is all about. And so the point about the the mirror, uh, the title of the chapter is Mirror, Mirror on the Wall, is, again, a practical lesson I had to learn the hard way. Long before emotional intelligence was a buzzword, I began to realize, because I spent years studying people that I thought were truly transformative and really successful in their career, and I began to realize that every one of us carry two um, instruments with us throughout our lives. One is a magnifying glass, and one is a mirror. The magnifying glass we use to look at the world around us, and the mirror, in, at least in theory, should be what we use to look at ourselves. For most of us, at least for me, my magnifying glass was well, well overdeveloped. I could look at everything around me with a clear 2020 vision, but sometimes, sometimes I was kind of reluctant to look at myself. And I had to learn to occasionally put the mirror down, excuse me, the magnifying glass down, and look at the mirror and then have the courage to ask tough questions and the temerity to answer them. And when I did that, a lot of things that were blind spots for me began to gradually diminish. And I'd love to say my mirror today is overdeveloped. It's not. I still have plenty of blind spots, as do, I guess, all of us. But I would tell you, when you look at the world through just the magnifying glass, your vision of where your career is going, your place and a grander scheme is going to be uh, – it's going to be pretty limited and it's going to be very, very flawed. And so my challenge to everyone is to think about this notion of can you look in the mirror, can you ask yourself tough questions, and then more important, are you prepared to answer those questions? And it's those people that I found to be incredibly intelligent emotionally and more often than not much better prepared to make good career decisions and to enjoy a significant career. Well, it it, it is important because, like you said, I'm- I don't know, we spend at least 60% of our waking hours doing our work, um, whether we're social entrepreneurs or we're investing conscious capital or we're working for a corporation. The the difference makers of the world, as you said, are going to constantly ask questions. Um, They're going to ask questions of themselves and ask questions of the system um, and ask questions of their leaders um, and not be afraid to do it. And I think what you're doing in your work here, Tim, is you're helping people to actually break out of a mold, um, look at their career in a different way, 
and actually find a, a way to have more of a sense of connection with the career. And that to me is important. And for my listeners, you know, we've been on with Tim Cole. Uh, the new book is called The Compass Solution, A Guide to Winning Your Career. And the author is Tim Cole. And Tim's uh, website is thecompassalliance.com. Uh, and you can look at it there. Um, he also is the owner of a company. Uh, well, it is thecompassalliance.com. That's where they can reach you, correct? Correct. Okay. And you can get this at Amazon. We'll put a link to Amazon, obviously. We'll put a link uh, to Tim's social media. Uh, this podcast will be up there and promoted there as well. Tim, what parting words would you have for the listeners today? Um, if there was a little paragraph or a point you could make, salient point, um, do you have anything you'd like to leave the listeners with? Yeah, I would say simply this. You, you can win your career. You can have a career of significance if you make the decision to make it a significant one. And I would also say, if you really want one skill to carry with you, commit to a lifetime of learning because it's the learners more often than not that find a way to get to that point of significance. Never, ever give up on the notion of the power of learning because that's, in my opinion, one of the things that's a difference maker. Well, um, I certainly echo that. I don't think I'd be doing these podcasts if I wasn't a continual learner. That's one thing people say to me, they go, Greg, you know, you keep doing those podcasts. Why do you keep doing that? Because no one pays you to do that. And I go, <laughs> I do it because I love doing it. I learn from it. Um, I, I had one of my authors just say the other day and a guy commented, it's a university on wheels. All these podcasts have an opportunity while you're driving your car someplace or you're on the treadmill, you're at the, you know, gym or wherever you are, take a listen to them. Uh, they're, they're way better been sitting there and, and listening to, uh, I'm not saying I'm not downing music, but just think what you could learn in a half an hour from a guy like uh, Tim Cole here about changing your career. So Tim, thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth. Thank you, Greg. This podcast is brought to you by Don Green, the executive director at the Napoleon Hill Foundation and the newly released book entitled How to Own Your Own Mind. Please listen to podcast number 651, with Don and Greg as they discuss content that has been locked away in a vault since 1941 about the definite lessons on how to organize your thinking to attain success. In Greg's interview with Don, they speak about three main principles covered in the book, creative vision, organized thought, and controlled attention. There is a tremendous value from this interview with Don. Please listen to podcast number 651 with Don Green. You can also learn more about the Napoleon Hill Foundation by visiting www naphill.org. Thank you for listening.